But, I, man, I love the turning of real pages. No, just if you, if, you really, if you like the digital format, that's fine. Uh, it's not a sin. It's okay to have a digital format. Uh, I'm not against it, but uh, I, I love turning pages, so it's good to hear. Uh, let's turn our pages to the 16th chapter. We'll finish verses 19 through 31. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Just as a way of background, if you weren't here with us the last couple of weeks, um, in this entire chapter, divided into three sections in most of your Bible, uh, Jesus speaks in all three sections regarding money. Uh, the pitfalls of living a life focused on money, and really when it comes to money, money as your security, because money in itself is not a sin. We all understand that, right? Money of itself is not wrong. But our security in money is not only wrong, but it's incredibly dangerous, eternally dangerous. So Jesus picks up with the 19th verse, and he kind of shifts gears and turns, and not just talking about the perils of money, but he goes directly into what happens in the afterlife uh, for those that have lived their lives for money or the security that money could provide. Starting with verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between, you, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from here pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But, Mo- but he said to him, If they do not hear Moses... And the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, Lord, just amplify your word this morning. You speak clearly, directly, Lord, that which we need to hear. And Lord, that our spirits will be changed. Anyone here doesn't know you and has never surrender their life to you, that today would be the day of their salvation. We ask, Lord, that you would use this text to spur us to do the work you've called us to do. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. We spend a lot of time thinking about life, don't we? What we want out of life, dreams for the future, our hopes and our aspirations certainly for ourselves, but also for our children, if you have children, and for our families, 
maybe your friends. Most people want to enjoy life. I do. How about you? Most people want to enjoy life and get as much out of it as possible. Now, people have very different definitions of what that means. Would you agree? But still, most people want to get as much out of life as they possibly can. And we don't just desire to enjoy the present, but we aim to enjoy the future also. We're always planning for the future. Career plans, education plans, home plans, health, fitness, even medical procedures or surgeries plans. Those aren't always fun, but they still have to be planned. Financial plans, just to name a few. Even in this room, probably everybody in this room has some plans for this afternoon, even if it's to take a nap. You have plans for tonight, even if it's to do absolutely nothing but lay on the couch. You have plans and schedules for tomorrow, later this week, plans for the fall, so-and-so's visiting in November, where are we going to be doing Thanksgiving this year, holiday season, well into 2016, and on and on and on the plans go. Some of you are super planners. You've already got 2018 planned out. As the church grows, we'll need your help, but that's a different story. But Jesus entered this world, his ministry, when he entered the world and he entered into his ministry, his ministry begged the question, what are your plans after death? Jesus' ministry begged the question of anybody and any, everybody that he would run into, what are your plans after death? And if you don't know what they are, And really, nobody, if you don't know when that day is going to be, let me say that. If you don't know what day that's going to be, and nobody does, nobody knows when their final day on earth will be, are you prepared for it? Jesus said, if you don't know when, are you prepared? And if not, here's the thing. Jesus wants us to be prepared, doesn't he? He wants us prepared for it. He brought the subject up. Nobody said, hey, can you talk about death, please? Here, you've been talking about money. Can you go ahead and talk about death? No one asked him to bring this topic up. He came into the world because he knows we kind of run from that topic. We put it out of our heads. We don't build funeral homes in the middle of our nice neighborhoods, do we? But he brings the topic up. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our study this morning, Eternity awaits us all. Eternity awaits us all. We'll look at three things this morning from the text. Time, eternity, and truth. Time, eternity, and truth. If you don't have the truth about time and eternity, we're in a lot of of trouble, aren't we? Only what Jesus says on the matter is going to matter. Let's look at time. Starting off here in verse 19, there was a certain rich man. He's speaking of a certain time period that apparently had already taken place in the past. Jesus is not speaking of something in the present. He says there was something in the past. Jesus is outside of time in in his divinity. 
He stepped into time in his ministry, but in the Godhead, he actually sits outside of time. He's speaking of a time in the past, but when you think about time, as it relates to all of us, we're all born somewhere, sometime. I was born in Annapolis, Maryland, February 1st, 1969. We're all born somewhere, sometime, and as soon as we're born, the meter begins to tick of our life. It's begun. We don't choose where we're born, do we? None of you had any input. You couldn't, you couldn't telegram mom and dad ahead of time and say, here's where I'd prefer to be born. I don't know where telegram came from. I just went back, way back in time for that. <laughs> we don't choose where we're born, who we're born to, what we look like, what ethnicity we are, what culture surrounds us, or what circumstances we're born into. We have no say in any of those things. All those variables and many others can be very different. Everyone's given a slice of time. Agree? Everyone's given a slice of time. For some, an extremely brief period of time. For some, a very long span of time, at least the way we look at it. And a wide range of variations all in between. And all the allocated time is given by a sovereign God who sits outside of time. What we do with the time we're given, well, that has eternal implications. It'll affect all eternity. Ephesians 5.16 and Colossians 4.5 both say that we're to redeem the time. Redeem the time we're given. Buy it back. Make good use of it. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days because they are numbered. There's only a certain number of them. Only God knows the number, but that we'd make each day count. Each day is going to mean something. Now, unless we've given our lives to the Lord, unless we've been saved, unless we've been born again, we'll be passing time, but we won't be redeeming time. will be passing time. We'll either be surrendering our time to God if we follow the Lord. We'll either be surrendering our time to Him. And by the way, when we surrender our time to Him, He'll multiply it now and for eternity. The eternal multiplication is actually infinite. The current multiplication is significant as well. So we'll either be surrendering our time to Him or we'll be surrendering our time, our lives, to just the clock that will eventually run out. And so with the precious commodity of time in the backdrop, Jesus tells the story of two men whose lives appear to be on a parallel track of time. Not that they're the exact same age, but they're alive at the same time. Just like all of us in this room, some of us are closer in age and are more parallel track, but to some extent we're all in parallel tracks of time on a a long timeline, we would all be right there in the same little slot. But their time on earth was drastically different, wasn't it, from what we just read? One was extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy. One was dirt poor, apparently owning nothing. The rich man lived a life of luxury and opulence. If he were here today, he'd probably live in a gated community, 
with, with multi-million dollar, multi-million dollar homes, multi-million dollar investments, probably vacation homes and other properties and other places and perhaps even around the world, a private jet, exotic cars, top-of-the-line jewelry and watches, no Timex. If it was the iPhone, it would be that, that the new $20,000 one, not just, the, not just the cheap $400 one or whatever it is now. I say cheap. Kidding. He'd have the world's most expensive clothing. You ever seen these shows? You know, someone says, eh, these jeans were only $800. you are like, what? This guy would have bet, he would have thought nothing of that. In any age throughout history, all throughout history, doesn't matter what, if you go 1,000 years back, 1,500 years, and all throughout history, this is the lifestyle so many else look on and just wonder, what would it be like? That's how shows like Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous ever become famous. Because everyone wants to kind of take a peek, like, what would that be like? To be able to have a, a private island. The rich man had a life of ease. He enjoyed the best food money could buy, prepared by servants and slaves, and that would include imported delicacies from all around the Mediterranean, all around the Middle East, parts of North Africa. He would have the most sought-after wines, the most sought-after grains, cheeses, olives, meats, oils, spices. If you've ever been to the Middle East, we're in Israel. I mean, all of these things are in abundance, but they're not all the same price. The best of the best cost the most. If he were alive today, he'd have private chefs, butlers, a staff to coordinate the meals. You ever watch so many celebrities? Like I uh, remember, I maybe 10, 15 years ago, I remember um, uh, remember hearing Oprah say, and my chef likes to make, well, most of us don't have that, right? I would eat really good if I had a private chef. And they were actually, and we had the money to buy the right stuff, but... uh, this guy would have had that stuff. If he were alive today, he'd have that whole staff to coordinate everything. Like the super wealthy in every age, he would like to throw extravagant feast for his highly connected and equally wealthy friends, political allies, and business partners. Because wealth hangs with wealth. They're same gated communities, same Fifth Avenue places, same you know, exclusive neighborhoods. When me and, uh, me and my wife Sarah, back when we were in college in Miami, uh, I had been in the uh, restaurant business before that. I'd bartended and, and uh, had been working my way through college and those things. And somehow we got uh, connected, our, uh, us and a couple of our other college friends, we got connected with a very exclusive catering company uh, that was doing parties for the ultra-wealthy. And Miami has some of the wealthiest people from around the world flying in from all over. And I'll never forget, we, here we are, about 10 college kids, we have the bow ties, white press shirts, black slacks, exclusive, these exclusive parties. I, you know, I barely had enough to pay the rent, but we were uh, in, invited in and, and serving these people that were multimillionaires and even billionaires. Um, I'll never forget this one particular party. Uh, if you've ever been to Miami, there's a section called Bow Harbor, and it's um, very exclusive, uh, high-end stores and all this stuff, and it's very similar from California, Rodeo Drive area. Um, <coughs> And we were in this penthouse. It was a, I didn't know whose it was, but it was so, the atrium was three stories high. 
They had this big sculpture, which was, I, I was told was an original Salvador Dali. And it was as weird as any other Salvador Dali I'd seen, so I had no reason to doubt um, that, uh, that it wasn't. But, you know, I'm a very curious person anyway, so I ask a lot of questions. Uh, so I'm asking different things, although I'm serving and everything else. And I'm listening to the conversations. And there was a partial owner of the New York Yankees there. There was a, a concrete magnet from Texas there. Uh, the owner of the place was a German billionaire who came once or twice a year to that penthouse. It was like 10,000 square feet. Came once or twice a year, but he owned homes around the world. And you know, listening to the conversation, the women were talking about their 21-day Mediterranean cruises. Literally. 21-day Mediterranean cruises, shopping at Haute Couture in France. All these conversations. And I heard lots of conversations about tax sheltering and legal stuff. For real. If you think this stuff is like, it really does permeate. And they had their attorneys there too. Because they're brokering bigger business deals. Because people know people. This is how it all connects. And so I was unsaved, fascinated by it all. Kind of was like, man, this would be cool to someday do some of this stuff. You know? But that's what, that's what the world lives for. That's what many people would aspire. Could I someday have all that? On the opposite end of the spectrum, from the rich man and our wealthy today, and there are many who are deeply poor, right here in Richmond, all across the country, around the world even far more poor than in the United States, destitute, people just completely forgotten about by society. They're not connected. They're not sought after. They're not adored. They're not admired. They're not looked up to. They're looked down on. They're pitied. They're rejected. They're sometimes patronized by politicians just for gain. They don't really care about them anymore. And you can tell because they don't really hang out with them. They're generally out of sight and out of mind by the majority, including many in the church including probably the majority of the church. You look at Lazarus' life. Jesus gives his name. He appears to be about as poor as a man can be. The rich man, no doubt, his name was known to everyone in the area, or at least the people that mattered. But isn't it interesting that Jesus knows Lazarus by name and says Lazarus' name, but doesn't say the rich man's name. Oh, everyone knows who the celebrities are. But Jesus just says, there was a certain rich man. Guess who's not impressed by the multi-billionaires? God. But he knew who, he knew who Lazarus was. Lazarus, his life, nobody would choose his life. Would you choose his life? Honestly. So you're given a choice, say, hey, would you like to have Lazarus' life? I mean, would anyone choose the life he had? Carried to the gate of this rich man? The rich man was full of food, full of material goods. What was Lazarus full of? Sores. Constant pain. Hunger. He had to have been some, somewhat lame, or he had to be carried to the gate, or he just was so malnutrition he couldn't get himself to the gate, not an energy level. I mean, he was begging for just the crumbs. You know, in the Jewish society, dogs were considered to be as low as you can be. Who 
did he live with? He lived at the same level as the dogs. They were licking his sores, licking the very blood on his body. Someone had enough pity to him to carry him to the gate. But I can't imagine any of us desiring this to be our life. Some, uh, some would think that a life like this would cause someone to be bitter and angry and hate. That's not what we see with Lazarus. He somehow just kind of accepts that this is where God's put him. And it, I doubt he's a lazy man. If he was lame or, or if he could work, I'm sure that he would have because Jesus doesn't assign any kind of blame on this situation just as this was where he landed. See, sometimes, you know, people, you know, sometimes the Jews thought if somebody, uh, the, the religious Jews of the Jesus' day, if somebody lived a certain kind of low, menial life, that they had a lot of sin in their life. And they would look at the rich man as he has been given such great wealth because he's a good, just man, and God has thrown, bestowed favor upon him. Do you know there's ministries that teach this? It's called this prosperity doctrine that uh, if God really loves you, he's going to make you rich and wealthy and all this stuff. Well, let's tell that to Lazarus. Because we see that he comes out in the end in a different place. Realize that if Jewish people think about this as well, if you kind of understand the Old Testament a little bit here, you realize that the Jewish people of that day, if they had collectively obeyed God's commandments on the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee, which I don't have time to go into a study of that, but had they obeyed the sabbaticals and the year of Jubilee, where debts are wiped out for their brethren, there would have been little, very little, if any, poverty to speak of, notwithstanding whatever the Romans would institute with just tyranny. But if, if you take the Roman equation out of it, and they were just running society, if they would have obeyed God's law, there would have been very little poverty in the land. And by the way, God's plan, if followed, would have kept a small minority of people from owning the majority of the wealth. God's plan actually is to prosper the whole of people. All of Israel he wanted to bless. Now, not to the same exact amount. There will be, even Jesus talks about even when we are given, uh, some will bear a hundredfold. You know, there's not going to be the exact same. But again, this grotesque poverty that Lazarus finds himself in was never God's plan. That's the, that sin, self-centeredness, Think of how much the rich man could have done for Lazarus. You know he did a lot for his other rich buddies, and they don't even need the help. But here's a man, I wonder, you know, he probably perhaps thought, you know, at least I let him lay at the gate. Some other friends would never let him lay at the gate. So God's got to be looking pretty favorably on me. Maybe every now and then, he even paid some people to bring him to the gate. There's so many people that think they're giving to God when they're just tipping God. But at the same time, they're tipping God, they really don't have God's heart for people. So you have these two drastically different lives. One man completely ostracized by society. One man living, 
life to the fullest. As he faring sumptuously, this, the text tells us, as he's eating the best of food, never once he said, you know what? Can you take some of this to Lazarus? It's only if the crumbs hit the ground and somehow were swept out by the servants into the street that he would get his hands on them. No care, no concern. But eternity comes knocking, doesn't it? Taking notes, let's look at eternity here. So it was, verse 22. Isn't it true that life really is just a dash between two numbers? Here's the synopsis of their life. Jesus says, so it was. So it was that the beggar died. And look, he's carried again. By what? Carried by angels. Not carried to a gate to beg anymore. Carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died also and was buried. The rich man would have been uh, buried in an expensive tomb. He would have been put laid in a, uh, an expensive tomb. Lazarus, uh, he would have been just a hole somewhere. Never remembered. But the Lord remembers him. I want to look at three things if you're taking notes under eternity. Three things you can write down. It goes on to say, and being in torments, he lifts up his eyes, sees Abraham from afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. As soon as they die, they're, carried to two, uh, they're taken to two places. First point on eternity, everyone's soul will live forever. Everyone's soul will live forever. Both men immediately arrive in eternity. Someone told C.S. Lewis about a gravestone that read, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. C.S. Lewis replied, I bet he wishes that were so. Because you can be dressed up, but everyone will go someplace. Nobody will just lay, the body will lay there, but the soul is going to move forward to one of two places. And Lazarus is carried no longer to the gate to beg, but carried into this place called Paradise. Hebrews 9.27, it says, And it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Because the body dies, but the soul still has a judgment coming. The soul will continue to live. Turn with me real quick. I just want to show you something in the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I want to just point out one thing. Um, in take for example, if you've ever had uh, a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they'll tell you that uh, that those that are not Jehovah's Witnesses are just going to well, they just kind of go to sleep in the ground and they don't exist anymore. Uh, soul sleep uh, to some extent, but but really just kind of a completely non-existent after that. There's no kind of remembrance. And uh, one of the passages that they'll use, uh, which completely goes against the teachings of Christ, because uh, Jesus is obviously telling us that that's not the case here in Luke chapter 16, but uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, uh, look at verses 5 and 6. This is the passage that oftentimes you'll have Jehovah's Witnesses use. It says, for the, living, uh, uh, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. 
They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy is now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done, here's the context, under the sun. If you look back at verse 3, Solomon writes in the third verse, um, at the end of the verse 3, he says, uh, Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. He's clearly speaking of they go to the dead. The soul goes to the dead, but the body, anything done under the sun, won't be done under the sun anymore. The sun is time and space, like me touching this pulpit. Uh, when it says that uh, it said they'll have no remorse, or, uh, no more, no memory, no hatred, no love. Well, while you're living is when you show people a lot of hatred or show people a lot of love. That's why you're doing anything under the sun. The body has to be present for you to do the things on earth, including accept or reject the Lord. So this text is really speaking of uh, that while we have a physical body, we're able to have a life, make decisions, love, hate, share, give, care, all of those things. But once the body's dead, no one in your office can come and get your input on the project anymore. Nobody can actually receive a hug from you anymore. Nobody actually can receive a harsh word from you anymore. All of those things are gone with the death of the body. But he says very clearly in verse 3, they go to the dead. The soul continues to live. Go back to um, our text in Luke chapter 16. There's many other passages we don't have time to cover it this morning. But again, everyone's soul is going to live forever. That's what Jesus is saying. Rich man dies, Lazarus dies. Their physical bodies, you could dig out, you could go pull the rich man's body out of the tomb. People in the community would have known where his tomb was. You could pull the tomb out, and he would have been buried in beautiful clothing. You could say, well, there's a skeleton right there. Who is Jesus talking about? Because we're looking at his skeleton. His soul is in hell. His soul is in Hades. Jesus has given us a window view. Number two, number, four, number one is everyone's soul will ever... Will everyone's soul will live forever. Number two, hell is real and so is heaven. Hell is real and so is heaven. Now I know hell isn't talked about much anymore and I know many pulpits won't even bring it up. And I know many Americans believe heaven exists but they don't believe hell exists. Do you realize there's lots of polls done on this? Many people believe heaven exists but don't believe hell exists. People believe God exists, they don't believe Satan exists. A little pitchfork guy, there's no way. First of all, he's not a little pitchfork guy. The Bible says he's beautiful. When we get back into the study of Ezekiel, you're going to see God's going to describe exactly what he looked like as an anointed cherub in his original role in heaven. He wasn't always doing what he's doing today. But hell exists, heaven exists, sin exists, our enemy, Satan exists. But heaven and hell are real. But they're two drastically different experiences that will go on forever. The rich man, interestingly enough, he's now the one begging. In his life, Lazarus did all the begging. Now the rich man is begging. He's begging for mercy. He's begging for someone. Abraham, even please send Lazarus with that, I don't care what his fingers look like, I don't care if they're clean. He would have never eaten from Lazarus' hand in his lifetime. Just dip, just dip your finger, just a little drop of water. 
anything to cool the torment of this flame. He's aware of Lazarus by name. The rich man did know who Lazarus was. He says, send Lazarus. He somehow, even probably in life, probably realized that Lazarus was a follower of God and he still would do nothing for him. They both were Jewish. They both would have been uh, you know, assigned to the same synagogue area, same religion, same faith, same Old Testament law. He had no care, no compassion, but he still, he knew who Lazarus was. He's not ignoring Lazarus now. He's pleading, send Lazarus even just a drop of water. The rich man begins to pray now. It's, hell is the, it's too late to develop a prayer life in hell. We have to develop a prayer life now. It's way too late to develop a prayer life at that point. But Jesus wants us to know that hell is real and heaven is real. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Listen, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Again, the body's laying there, but the soul is somewhere else. All in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In Psalm 55, verse 5, the psalmist writes, Let death seize them, let them go alive into hell. How can you go alive if the body's dead? Well, the body doesn't go alive into hell. The soul goes alive into hell. The soul goes into hell. Isaiah 5, 14, Therefore Sheol, the Old Testament term for Hades or hell, in the Old Testament Sheol and the New Testament Hades, Therefore, Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he who is jubilant shall descend into it. You know, the world has a lot of pomp, a lot of glory, a lot of front covers of People magazine and, and, and the good life, but if there's a rejection of Christ, the Bible makes it clear. This isn't a fun topic, is it? But like I said, I didn't bring it up, Jesus did. He didn't ask the audience there, hey, would you guys like me to talk about this today? That's why we go verse by verse of the Bible. Because it's just the Lord cares enough for a world that's lost and headed there that he's putting up road sign after road sign after road sign after road sign saying detour, detour, detour. But heaven's real too. Isn't that great to know? Hell is real, but so is heaven. John chapter 21, verses 2 and 4. This is John. Then I, John, John the Apostle, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying, nor there shall be any pain, for the former things have passed away. Heaven is the opposite of hell. There's, in hell, there's torment. In heaven, there's no pain. Not even the slightest headache any, anymore. Not even the slightest hangnail on the finger. Nothing. No paper cuts. No sweating. No labor pains, you ladies. And anything else you can think of, and far worse. I have to lighten it a little bit every now and then. But heaven will be glorious. Beyond no pain, it will be complete Rest, 
peace, joy, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, prior to the resurrection, we don't know exactly where uh, the Bible talks about Sheol as the lower parts of the earth. It talks about Jesus de- descending down to uh, even leading out um, the captives, uh, those that, uh, that he would take with him uh, to heaven. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, Hades, we don't know exactly where it's at. Uh, some do believe that it's in the center of the earth. It very well could be. None of us know definitively. The Bible never says definitively. It certainly could be. It could be somewhere else in a different dimension. Regardless of where it is, Hades was the holding place for the physically dead before Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the dead. There's this physical place, and Jesus is describing it here. And if you kind of look at, if you look, if you look kind of maybe simple as a circle and drew a line down the center of it and put a huge gulf, there would be a place of torment on one side and a place of complete paradise on the other. They were side by side. Now, they were as different as if you go back to, uh, for example, uh, in Exodus chapter 10. Remember when the plagues were poured out in Egypt? It says that in Egypt, the darkness was thick, but in Goshen, there was nothing but light. They were side by side. It would be like walking from one street, and you walk on one street, and it's pitch black, and as soon as you cross the street, all of a sudden there's light. That was Goshen and Egypt. There was a thick wall of darkness, kind of like the Red Sea. There was a thick wall there that they walked between. And in some, in some respects, Jesus, Jesus is telling us, and he's using Abraham's dialogue here, that there was a gulf fixed between the two places, that before he rose from the dead, everyone that died, whether you're headed to heaven or whether you're headed to hell, went to this temporary holding place called Hades. And Hades encompassed both the paradise and the to- place of torment, but they were separate from one another. Now, personally, I don't think it was normal that they saw each other and had conversations. I believe that God allowed in this instance, again, we'll find out when we get to heaven, but I believe that God allowed in this instance, for whatever reason, he allowed the rich man to have a conversation. That Abraham, in some way, God moved him closer in some realm that he could have a conversation for all of our admonishment and warning. And allowed this conversation to take place. I don't believe in any respect that this was a normal thing that took place, but God allowed it. Uh, by the way, uh, some believe this is a parable. I do not. Many, many pastors, theologians do not believe this is a parable. One reason why we don't believe it is a parable, well, at least I don't believe it's a parable, every other parable, Jesus never uses specific names. Here he uses two. Abraham, who's a real man, and Lazarus, he uses the actual name. The rich man... He doesn't use the name, but that speaks more to the fact that his condemnation, God knows the name of the, my sheep hear my voice. Rich man, he didn't have, Jesus says, at the end of the age, people say, Lord, let me in. And he says, depart from me, I do not know you. I don't believe this is a parable at all. This is Jesus giving an insight into the eternal realm. But what happens after the resurrection of Jesus is those that were saved were taken out of that temporary holding place and taken up into heaven. Paul would later write, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord Jesus. John actually, when he goes in the book, when in Revelation, he actually sees the elders all at the throne there of Jesus. They're not in paradise. He sees that he's caught up into heaven. They're not in paradise anymore. Paradise is the 
the good part of Hades, right? When paradise is taken out, it seems to be, and there may even be an allusion to that back in Isaiah 5 when I read, when I read to you, it said, uh, Sheol has enlarged itself. It may very well be that once paradise was taken out of Hades and all the saints were moved after the resurrection into heaven, that hell actually became larger. And of course, it's continuing to sadly fill up, isn't it? Because there are far more people being born and many more rejecting. And matter of fact, the apostasy at the end is one of the worst. The third thing, though, and matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, last thing I'll say on this, uh, Revelation 20, 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. The, just like heaven is the destination, all those that were in paradise were taken to heaven, hell itself and death itself are cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the permanent place, just like heaven will be the permanent place of forever with the Lord, although there's also going to be the new Jerusalem will be, uh, will be coming down out of heaven. That's a whole other study. Then we're getting into how, where, where's the new earth <laughs> related to the new heaven. But hell is cast in the lake of fire, and paradise, those who are in paradise, are caught up and brought up into heaven. And this all takes place after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the third, th- third and final thing I want you to uh, write down here, our destination The first, again, if you're taking notes, the first, again, was everyone's soul will live forever. Hell is real and so is heaven. And then the third, our destination is determined by our decision on earth. Our destination is determined by our decision on earth. You cannot have your family pray you out of a place that doesn't exist called purgatory. That doesn't exist. That's not in the Bible. That's the added words of man. Uh, you, can't, you can't pay penance, and the decision on earth determines the eternal destination. Jesus doesn't speak of any other option here, and nowhere else in the Scriptures does it either. And it, understand that it wasn't, it wasn't Lazarus's poorness is why he's saved, and it wasn't the rich man's richness as to why he's condemned in hell. Abraham in the Old Testament had plenty of money, didn't he? He was saved. David had money. Rich man of Arimathea in the New Testament. All rich people are not going to hell because money isn't the issue. It's the heart. There are some fabulously wealthy Christians that love the Lord. That love the Lord. Matter of fact, they finance missionaries all over the world. D.L. Moody had several of them that financed his trips to, to Europe to preach the gospel. So money is not the issue per se, the love of money as opposed to loving the Lord. Well, the rich man was not just in love with money, he was in love with this world. What does it mean if you, Jesus said, what will it matter if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? He was in love with the world. Lazarus was in love with the Lord, and the Lord never, ever gave him any kind of heaven on earth. We've all had little bits of heaven on earth, haven't we? I have. I've had periods of my life that was a really good day. Lazarus, at maybe earlier in his life, he did. But by the time he died, he didn't say, these are really good days. He just knew he had a good Lord and Savior. And he was looking forward to finally being at rest. But our destination is determined by our decision here on earth. In Matthew 25, 44, we kind of see a picture of the self-centered life that the rich man lived. 
Uh, Jesus says, then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or in prison and did not minister to you? You know, people at the end of the age when they meet Jesus on the day of judgment will say, I never saw you poor. I never saw you, Jesus. And Jesus will say, as much as you never helped the people that were lying on the ground around you or dying or being slaughtered by ISIS and you would not even give a cent. You didn't have my heart. Now, those things don't save us. They are a reflection of our salvation. Does that make sense? Those things do not save us. You're not saved because you did something good for a poor person or someone diseased or someone with cancer. You're not saved because of those works. You do those works because you're saved. And the reason why the rich man didn't do those works is he wasn't saved. And he saw no value in them. They were a waste of time when he could have been writing big business deals. And if anyone needed to do it, he could outsource it. Where Jesus never outsourced compassion, he gave it. Anyone, and even some, some people that are unsaved, they'll write a check to United Way too. But God looks at the heart. Did you have compassion on those? Did you give a cup of water? No. See, God changes our heart. I know before I was saved, I didn't care about many of the things I care about today. I didn't care about that stuff. We're going into Bonaire tonight. You'd have never convinced me to waste a Sunday night going into Bonaire before I knew the Lord as my Savior. I could have been barbecuing. I could have been playing volleyball. I could have been doing something else, but you could not convince me to, to waste a beautiful, gorgeous day like tonight will be God says, I'll be there. Come join me. Because that's where Jesus would go. He would go to those that were down and out. John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Jesus himself will make the determination, have you come to me or not? And if you have, he guarantees you everlasting life. Anyone that believes on his name and is saved, like the thief on the cross, did he ever get a chance to go visit the poor? No. Why was he saved? Because he believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never had a chance to do any works. Ray Comfort has a great question for people that are uh, in false religions. As a matter of fact, he actually, uh, just this week, he posed this question back to those that do believe uh, in, um, in Jehovah's Witness. I mentioned that earlier, but he said, uh, he said, I have a knife in my back. I have like less than 30 seconds to live. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Do you realize most of the religions in the world can't give you an answer at all? Because you've got to do a bunch of stuff. Jesus said, believe on my name, and you're saved immediately. Then later, if he lets you go on and live, like he has most of us here, where we've had some time on earth, we're able to then do the works that he's given us to do, but we were never saved by the work. We were saved by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our destination is determined by one decision, to follow Christ Ask him for forgiveness of sin. And if we do that humbly, he'll change the desires of our heart. We'll no longer be self-absorbed. 
I don't say we'll be perfect. We'll have self-absorbed moments, right? I'll have one sometime today. I probably already have. So will you. We will have self-absorbed moments, but we will not live a self-absorbed life. Does that make sense? There's a big difference. You and I lie, but we hopefully are no more liars. In one sense, we are. I get that. I know, what, but, but God changes the way we think. We no longer walk by Lazarus at the gate and say, oh, too bad he's there. We can't think that way anymore. It's the way the rich man, his determination, he'd never been saved, so he'd never changed his life. He'd never been a new creation. The last thing we close with, with truth. Jesus tells us that what takes place in this conversation uh, again, Abraham, as God allows this conversation to play, Lazarus says, you know, if, if, if you can't send Lazarus to dip his tongue and cool me from this torment, if you can't do that, I've got another idea. Can you please send Lazarus from the dead, send him back to earth, and have him tell my brothers about this place? Because they're not going to listen to what's written in the Old Testament that's already there. I just read from Isaiah about Sheol. I just read from Psalm 55 about hell. Job, in the book of Job, he says, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall stand with him on that day. Even after, he said, even after my skin is destroyed. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, passage after passage after passage about Jesus, about sin, about hell, about redemption. Billy Graham said, if you read the scriptures and miss the story of the Savior, you have missed its message and its meaning. You can read the Bible as an academic exercise and completely miss that we need to be redeemed. Completely miss that we need to be saved. This rich man, his brothers probably went to the synagogue. They probably went to temple. They probably participated in Passover. They probably did all the feasts, and they were still lost. Why? Because they didn't think they were that bad a people. They probably thought... We're better than most. And when we die, as good Jewish men, we'll be fine. The rich man was counting on his birthright of being Jewish, counting on the fact that God must have blessed him and made him so rich, but never did he repent of sin. But he says that his brothers, notice the word he says about his brothers, verse 30, and they will what? Repent. They'll finally know they have something to repent of. You know why a lot of people don't repent? They don't think they have anything to repent of. They think they stole a cookie at the age of two, and that's about all they've ever done bad. Because they're comparing themselves to other people, not comparing themselves to the perfection of God. And, they, and he believes, if you, if you send someone from the dead, they'll, they'll, they'll believe that. They won't believe the prophets that have come through town. They won't believe the testimony of so many things. They send someone from the dead. You know what encourages me as a, as a Christian when I, when I share the gospel with some people? You ever get bummed out when you share the gospel with someone they don't believe a word you said? Some of you might be here now, but if, you, uh, if you're here now, um, maybe, maybe there's someone here that doesn't believe what I'm saying. Maybe they're not saved yet. Maybe they still don't believe it. But guess what? Jesus himself spoke to people, and they didn't believe him. Don't ever feel, wow, I must have really not done a good job presenting this thing. If someone doesn't believe it, Jesus presents it perfectly and actually is the gospel, and people often would say, I don't believe it. They're literally standing in the presence of God Almighty. They don't believe it. So don't 
think that just because you and I share it with someone and they say, well, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe I need that. That's good for you. I'm glad you found something that makes you happy. I don't need that. It comes down to believing the truth. John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Free from what? Well, his brothers, they were still deceived, self-deceived. They believed they would inherit eternal life because of their goodness, because of their wealth, because of their Judaism. I don't know. But they were deceived. If they hadn't repented and put their trust in the Lord, they had not been saved. They were no more ready for eternity than the rich man here. But he knows his brothers aren't ready. He knows they need to repent too. He knows they shared his same ideology, his same philosophy, his same view on life. The world is deceived. Revelation 12, 9 says that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. (laughs) Satan's got a lot of deception that he uses on people, right? The Bible's not true. Jesus was never alive. All religions are the same. All roads lead to heaven. You've got plenty of time. You're born an American, so you're going to be fine. Your grandpappy was a Christian, so you're a Christian. It goes on and on, doesn't it? They're all deceptions. They're all lies, and people would rather believe a lie than actually hear Jesus say, no, 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 none of those are true. This is the truth. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. See, Satan is constantly trying to convince people that you don't need to get saved, you're fine, you're this, you're that. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? When people just simply believe the words of Jesus. Once you believe them, you have to act on them. Once you believe it's true, you have to follow it. If you don't, you look at Revelation 20, 19, but the cowardly, unbelieving and then a long list of other sins, the cowardly and unbelieving are the first sins listed. First sins listed, cowardly and unbelieving, have their part in the lake which burns. Why? Because they just never believed. The rich man believed some things, but he didn't believe what he needed to believe. I'll never forget the impact of when Pastor Bob used to talk, I was there in Fort Lauderdale and he mentioned this, I'll never forget it, I've mentioned it probably a dozen times here. He used the concept true truth. There's a lot of truths in the world. It's true that there's a sheets across the street. It's true that my shoes are brown. It's true that the chairs you're sitting on are gray. Those truths are not that important. In the scheme of life, they're not important, are they? They're true, but they're not life-changing truths. Then there comes a real truth. So people believe a lot of truth. It's true that a job opening. Oh, I'm going to apply. It's true that I could make this kind of money. It's true that I could buy this car. It's true that this is available to me. It's true that I can prepare for my retirement. And then you say, well, it's true that you're going to die. I don't care about that. It's true you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I don't, I don't believe that. So people will believe all kinds of other things. Oh, Twitter says this. It must be true. And a lot of times, that's actually not true, right? Then they hear something that actually is truth. It transcends something not important like this pulpit is brown. Wouldn't matter if it's white. They hear a true truth, and they let it go by. Grab onto the true truth, 
with some urgency. That's what his brothers needed to repent. They had the opportunity with urgency to run to the cross, to believe the word of the Lord. That's what Jesus says, believe. Whoever believes on me, and you act on it, you call upon his name. So many have a false belief that whatever could happen, I think a lot of people believe the words of God. Do you know a lot of people, I bet you anything, a lot of people you know believe that the Bible is true. And sometimes they'll tell you they don't believe it. But I believe a lot of people believe the Bible is true. They just believe that God isn't going to end their life yet. They believe the Bible is true. They have a false belief that what could happen just won't happen yet. Could happen, but it won't happen. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Many actually believe God, but they just think he'll delay. They believe, many Americans will say, I believe in God. But what they're saying is, I don't believe it happened yet. They don't believe that their sin is grievous. Here's what I know as we come to a close. You you and I can pursue all this world has to offer. And you can actually acquire things you can actually touch, like, like purple garments, the rich man. Sumptuous food. You can actually acquire things you can eat, touch, taste, feel. And Jesus said, blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. I was not in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, neither were you, when Jesus was crucified. Were you there? I wasn't there. I was not in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. I was not there at the grave when he rose from the dead, but I believe it as sure as I'm standing here. And once you believe that, and really believe that, you could offer me a billion dollars to walk away from my faith for one week, and I'd say, no thanks. You could say, hey, you could live the next 30 years of your life for the world and actually get a deathbed conversion. I'd still say, no way. But a lot of people would say, I'll take that. First of all, I wouldn't even take that chance. Would you? It's not worth it. If you don't believe what the Lord has said, everything else is grasping for the wind. The whole life is a vapor, isn't it? But the Lord, he's not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, including these other brothers. And folks, we don't need to have any great signs and wonders the Bible makes it perfectly clear the only thing that will penetrate hearts and turn people from this temporal life to eternity is this book and the gospel. Amen? We simply speak those words and let God do the rest. And it will change lives. Let's, keep, let's continue to share this message. I know it's not an easy thing, but I tell you what, real love, as my good friend Sam Nadler says, warns. It warns. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, your only begotten son, into this world. And Lord, maybe the world wasn't asking you to talk about these things, but you know what we need, just like a parent knows what a child needs. And you know that we need the forgiveness of sin. You know that we need redemption. You know that we need to be turned to the foot of the cross. And Lord, as we come to a close this morning, I just pray that if there's any here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, that they would not put off, Lord, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but they would just call upon the name of the Lord. And we know that you're so faithful, so loving, so gracious, so willing to save. Lord, you tell this story not to frighten, but to warn us to 
Lord, turn us away from certain destruction. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to do so. In Jesus' name. As we